Hello and welcome to Comics Corner number nine. I am joined by my co-host Harry. Hello. And as always, I am Connor. And I just wanted to pause before we announce what we're doing. As you might see behind us in the new studio, we have some snazzy graphics. Thank you very much to our editor, Jack, who always puts in the time to ensure that these episodes are as dynamic and panel-filled as possible. And he's really gone out of his way to make the new studio look great. So yeah, thanks very much, He's doing a fantastic man. job. So thank you, Jack. Yeah, thank you, Jack. And uh, if you had noticed behind us, there's some classic covers. And that's because today... Today we're kicking off what will be at least a two-part series on the history of American comics. And we had a request to do this, I think it might be by Skeptical Waves of all people, Possibly. saying that if you haven't got much of a foray into the actual stories, if you haven't read them yet, how do you get into comics? How do you understand the industry? And I thought what would be best is just to go through the real-world chronological timeline, how the industry mm. rose up, how it interplayed with the political events of the time, and how and why superheroes came to be, particularly in America in the 1930s. Yes, uh, it, it would make sense if it was sceptical ways given that he's a curator of ancient texts himself um, and if it was you or if it was somebody else thank you for suggesting this because uh, this has been absolutely Connor's labour of love I can't take credit for any of this because this has really tapped into Connor's latent autism <laughs> To be able, it, he's got his own superpower, which is just unf uh, unrivaled focus and dedication to yeah. being able to track down all of the details necessary. So this has been a labor of love on his part. I'm mainly here for these two episodes to contribute comments here and there and to flip through and probably nod my head and go, wow, oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, my, my kryptonite is obviously eye contact. Now, the reason we're doing <laughs> superhero comics, and, and this is, I thought, a pretty good quote from, from Douglas Walk's reading comics. Frankly, superhero comics is synonymous with comic books. Uh, that's why the phrase cape yes. shit is banded around. We have covered manga before. We will do again not to leave when, but we're going we're gonna to branch out a little bit, but it's synonymous with the industry, and, and Douglas Walk puts it perfectly. There's no way of getting around it. If you're going to look honestly at American comics, you're going to encounter superheroes. The spandex wall is the public face of the medium, and its monolithic presence is what leads to the conflation of the superhero genre and the comics medium by people who don't know any better. Comic book as a pejorative basically means characteristic of superhero comics. And all of the eras of superhero comics are broken down into different epochs, not to steal Bo's word. And those are the metallurgic ages. So that's the Platinum Age, the precursor to superhero comics before the industry created its first superhero in 1938. The Golden Age, the invention of superheroes, starting with Superman. The Silver Age, the reinvention of superheroes after the legislative intervention by mm. the Senate and the Comics Code Authority, which we'll be covering today. The Bronze Age, which was a time of maturation, rebellion against the comics code, mainly because of the Vietnam War, the Carter administration, changing social conditions Infiltration in by subversives like Alan Moore. That's the Dark Age. Oh, is that or, the Dark Age? Or oh, the oh, slash right. heroic age. We're going to get into that in the second can you part. Can you call anything involving Alan Moore the heroic age? I wouldn't say so, but there's a bit of contention within the industry, so it's worth exploring mm. the debate. And that's what happened when you got the British Invasion, you got Vertigo, you got the Dark Knight yes. Returns, you got the Killing Joke. Some of those we've already covered, so we won't go into deep textual analysis there, but we will be looking at the development of the industry. And then a nebulous phase called the Modern Age. Yes, as is pretty consistent with all media since around the year 2000, after the 90s really, it all just kind of congeals into a big grey blob of cultural references and nobody really knowing exactly what's going on. Well, all of the names of the ages imply a slow 
deterioration or degrading away from the source. And I think that's pretty encapsulated by the fact that the sales numbers have slumped, the integrity of the artists, particularly with their conduct on Twitter, has been shown on full display. The quality of the writing. Yeah. And, and Whereas so, before, when we've been examining older comic books, it's been pretty clear that a lot of them have had uh, implicit political bias and implicit political messaging in them. The writers these days don't even feel it's fit to write a story around their political messaging. Instead, they have the political messaging be the story itself. So certainly there has been a massive deterioration in quality. Yeah, it's become a vehicle for progressive politics rather than any kind of commitment to character-driven narrative. It's like Stan Lee had, and we'll get onto Marvel and mainly the second part, because they don't come into being until around the early 1960s. Stan Lee had Stan's soapbox to talk about the issues that he thought were prevalent, but they were... Kind of nebulous. It was like, don't be a bigot, guys, Excelsior. Yeah. And then and there's try that and- classic letter that everybody's seen published in one of them where he says, Oh, the greatest evil we face these days is racism and bigotry and such. So people like Stanley obviously had a message that they were pushing, yeah. and a lot of the stories did push those messages implicitly or explicitly, but they just had a story around them. And they they weren't like policy prescriptions, no. other than in one instance where they dealt with drugs in the 70s. But we'll we'll get to that in how it relates mainly to the comics code rather than even uh, sort of legal or social prescriptions. Uh, the biggest hacks were Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, I'm unfortunate to report. But that will be that's more not for to, the Bronze Age that's stuff. N- that's not to um, cast dispersions on the quality of Neil Adams' artwork, oh, no. certainly. The, the, and Denny O'Neill as a Batman editor was stellar, but Green Lantern, Green Arrow, people talk I've about it. I've still never it. read it. Mm, people talk about it because it's important. They don't talk about it because it's garbage. Uh, but we'll <laughs> we'll leave that till part two because that's that's all the Bronze Age. But I, I I wanted to say that I think we're slowly progressing, and we'll, we'll go in the final part, in the second part, or maybe even third at this point, into what the rest of the industry is doing, particularly with crowdfunding and the dissolution of the distributing monopoly by Diamond. I think we're entering- Well, we can talk about the Ripperverse as well, because because of what we're talking about with this massive downward slide in quality that's happened over the past 10 or so years, particularly, obviously there's been ups and downs throughout the industry for the decades that it's been around, but this past 10 years has been a marked downturn in quality. It has led to people, independents like Ripper, wanting to create their own independence, which is absolutely fine as far as I'm concerned. In the 90s, we had people striking out from Marvel and DC and creating independence like Image. Sorry, excuse me, I might sneeze. And I've saved it. <laughs> um, but those sorts of people, the Jim Lees, they all still shared the same social views and the comics that they were doing were more just of the time. They just wanted to reflect the dark and edgy character of the gritty 1990s comics that were coming out at the time that Marvel and DC weren't as, well, they were still partaking in it, but they didn't want it to go as far as Image did. Whereas this is a real marked branch away from the mainstream comics industry, especially given the image these days has just become another big publisher like Marvel and DC that promotes the same garbage political messaging. Yeah, especially because I I think we're seeing a bifurcation and and we'll focus more on this in the latter part, but I think the mainstream comics industry is going the way of lead or where it's poisoned, whereas the the direct-to-consumer distribution model that uh, Ethan Van Skyve or Eric July are going for is a crucible that's stripping away the impurities of the current metals to get to the core within. And I hope we will see some poetic. kind of, of renaissance. But speaking of metals, let's go to the first one then. So the yes. Platinum Age. That kicks off from about 1897 with one of the first newspaper that's comic early. strips. 
Yes. No superheroes, though. This is the, the precursor of the medium right the way through to 1938. We have a, we have a definite cutoff point when the Platinum mm. Age ends, which we don't always get with most ages. Some of them get more nebulous as they go on, but, but this one's pretty concrete and set in stone. And the first regular serialized non-reprinted comic was in was by Dell Publishing's The Funnies, and that was 1929. And it was 16 pages, 10 cents, and it was just printed in four-color color. So very rudimentary. They were normally funny animal stories or the, the Charlie Brown type stuff. Yes. It was fairly innocuous. Uh, it, this one lasted 36 issues, but it was pretty unprofitable. Barely anyone bought it. Prices then tripled between issues three and 22 to make up for lacking sales, and then plummeted to five cents from issue 22 until issue 36. So some of these titles included, and this was around they, the same they, time. So the publishers got a rudimentary lesson in basic economics there. Yeah. Uh, we, we will actually see that happening again in the Bronze Age, because there was a DC implosion, and that was around the time of the Carter administration's massive inflation mm. but also there was a giant snowstorm that stopped any of the trucks distributing everything so oh, really? they cut loads of titles like Dead Man and Black Lightning before they even properly got off the ground oh, so that's a shame for yeah. those writers who were involved I'd imagine uh, it killed a lot of creativity yeah. fortunately later on in the Bronze Age some of those characters had a bit of a rebirth in, in Amalgam comics but this is this is part of the reason I wanted to do this is because there's so many political and social factors that actually influence your art coming out particularly in a serialised medium like comics which back in the day was actually concerned about selling numbers to consumers what a shock novel concepts, I know. Uh, some of the characters of this time included Little Nemo, Dick Tracy, Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, Popeye, and Tarzan. So they had a bit of a mix of swashbuckling heroes, sci-fi characters, but no superheroes Interestingly yet. enough as well, if you want to talk about the evolution of mediums, you can see in the, I think, 1930s, 40s, and 50s, characters like Tarzan and Flash Gordon would later get put onto the uh, serials yes. of, on television, which would later go on to inspire their own films in the 1980s and other films like Indiana Jones. So it's interesting how the medium really branches out in that way and influences a lot of other developments. Well, the serials were, were more movies first. And mm. I, I think the first serial, I think we'll talk about it later, but... I think Captain Marvel got his own movie serial before Superman. I mm. could be I could be misremembering. Like Batman had a serial in in the early forties uh, as yes, well. I've got fuzzy black and white images in my head of a really cheap looking Batman outfit. <laughs> we'll have to flash them up for the audience. <laughs> uh, Walt Disney also started producing Mickey Mouse comics in in nineteen thirty, so he predates Superman by eight years. Uh, there are also Tijuana Bibles. Are you familiar with those? Are? No, I'm not. So, do you remember in Watchmen? when Silk Spectre visits her mother, Silk Spectre, and she finds a little porno comic and she was sent it by fans. She said, oh, I think yes. it's flattering. So Tijuana Bibles were these little matchbook comics of um, attractive ladies. Ah, all right. Yeah, and they were, uh, they were called Tijuana because they were believed to have been created by organized crime. And the rumor was it was smuggled across the border from Mexico to the US, but it could well have been the mob as well, because we'll it certainly see, wouldn't have been, been produced legally, would it? Um, they would have evaded obscenity laws. I don't know how explicitly illegal it was, because I think some of them were sold on newsstands, but it more more could have been that it wasn't properly enforced. But I think we'll see throughout this that the mob could have been quite heavily involved in the comic book publishing industry. Oh, really? Yeah, I've, I've found some sources that suggest so. There's, there's no confirmation, so I don't want to besmirch the good memory of anyone involved in Marvel and DC and the like, but there was at least one man who was good friends of Lucky Luciano. Oh, really? Yeah, who I've done an, an epochs on with, with Bo fairly recently. Which and, you should also watch. Yeah, he was, for those who don't know, the man who started the commission, the five families, which included Al Capone. So he ran organized crime 
throughout the 30s and 40s. So it could say he was a bit of a shady character, but but yeah. Um, detective pulps were also quite popular during the time. And they began with Detective Comics number one in 1937. The cover to that hasn't aged well. Has it not? Um, is he fighting some Asian stereotype? The whole cover is just a giant Asian stereotype. Oh, okay, with a, wonderful. With a, with a big pigtail and fangs. Yeah, <laughs> the, the the lead character in that was Slam Bradley, who has since shown back up in Catwoman comics by Darwin Cook and Ed oh, Brubaker. Really? But he was the precursor to Superman. He was a Captain Marvel-looking, uh, eraser-necked, big, chunky, fists-first private detective. So, so prior, prior to that sort of design trend were the men featured in these earlier comics mm. that you're talking about were they more every every man types or were they the big aspirational burly men they were aspirational but they weren't explicitly superheroes i mean of course tarzan was shredded but he was more of an adventurous he's raised style by monkeys in in the in the jungle so he's going to have yeah. to be to survive yeah or, or dick tracy or, or uh, flash gordon i mean everyone's pretty much everyone's seen the 80s flash gordon movie it's not that far from the original yeah. comics other than the queen music of course and then bradley continued to be a backup in detective comics um until 152 in october 1949 so he had a pretty good innings as a as a precursor character so dc comics specifically because they were the first giant on the scene i mean we've spoken about dc far more than we have marvel it's probably because of our relative more familiarity with dc but they've got a long and storied history they've got about 35 years on marvel as well so detective comics number one was published um printer and distributor harry donenfeld and this was national periodical publications that was what they were titled at the time um and his business partner, Jack Leibowitz, bought the head of National Periodicals, Malcolm Wheeler Nil- Nicholson, out of it because Nicholson was on the verge of bankruptcy. Nicholson had produced the new fun comics that were the really early comics that were floating around at the time. So they were the funny animal comics that had come out of the newspaper comic strips, the ones that had been reprinted and unprofitable. They decided to double down and, and really make a go of it. So he was I, a I'd pioneer. They were, you know, you buy a newspaper, oh, uh, here's something for the kids to enjoy. Yeah, it's like Looney Tunes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... They the stories were a hell of a lot more superficial and inoffensive, which is quite humorous given the accusations that we'll get onto later from from Frederick Wortham. Uh, the company was then renamed National Periodical Publications after National Allied Publications was bought out. Uh, Leibowitz headed the accounting and creative parts of DC, so he was the head of the Detective Comics division. And then Donenfeld handled and expanded the distribution through his company, Independent News Company. And Independent News Company will come up later because they ended up doing a contract with Marvel, and DC were mainly outselling Marvel comics when Marvel properly kicked off in the early 60s because they were artificially throttling their distribution at the newsstands because Marvel was being distributed by DC's parent company. Ah, silly idea, but well, it, so, so what was DC originally called again? So it was I think National it, Allied Publications, National and then it Allied changed to National Periodical Publications when uh, Leibowitz and Donenfeld bought it off of Nicholson. All right, and he could do that because it turns out that that Donenfeld was the guy that was friends with Lucky Luciano. Ah, he had mob connections, or so went the rumors at the time. It didn't help that he bragged about knowing Lucky Luciano and Frank Costello. So I wonder where he got this money from. <laughs> How how willing was the original owner to sell it in the first place? Well, he did go bankrupt. So oh, okay, so there is some in- incentive there. Yeah, we can we can assume that he needed to get out of a tight spot, and that the guys made him an offer that they couldn't refuse. Yeah, well, who knows? I, su- I suppose any amount of money. <laughs> yep, um, he had actually almost gone to prison once for spicy pulps. 
so those were the detective stories that may have ran afoul of the obscenity laws because of the scantily clad women in distress on their covers. They're not quite Tijuana Bibles, but they were offensive to sensibilities at the time. Yes, and saucier than was expected. Yeah, and he managed to not face prison time. Wonder if he called a favour in there, but but okay. So Donenfeld then remained president of DC until his death in 1965. So he had a he had a good tenure there. Leibowitz remained at DC until 1970, and then moved onto the board of directors with Warner Brothers, and he died in 2000. And Warner Brothers, as you now currently know, owns DC for better or for worse. And so that sets the stage for our jumping into the golden age, a particular bound, because the thing that sets off the golden age is the invention of Superman with Action Comics in 1938. So before superheroes had come along, there were a few characters in the detective pops. So I'm pretty sure you might be familiar, if you're a Razor Fist viewer particularly, with the Phantom. Yes. Um, uh, is, is it not the Shadow? Uh, the the So the Shadow is also there, but the Phantom, that Billy Zane played him in a movie. Oh, okay. I'm not familiar with He's this. in a strange purple outfit. I will bring up the shadow in, in a moment. All right, okay. Um, he was in a newspaper strip starting on February 17th, 1936. He had absolutely no superpowers, but he fought crime in a costume. And Batman the Animated Series viewers might know this because he was originally named the Grey Ghost. Ah, okay. Yeah, and there was an episode of Batman the Animated Series, for those who don't Classic know. Classic episode. Where Batman was inspired to become Batman by a child that superhero used to watch in movie serials called The Grey Ghost. And it was voiced by the late Adam West, obviously who played Batman in the 1996 team. It, it was a wonderful tribute. Series. Yeah, it's a really, really wholesome episode. Uh, there was also the Crimson Avenger, who was in Detective Comics before Batman. He was in Detective Comics number 20, so seven issues before. And he was masked, and he used a firearm to fight crime. Much like Batman as well, because most people don't know that Batman actually used to carry a gun. Again, Batman for his first few kill. years, it is quite funny to see those old panels. Well, it's when he's throwing men into vats of acid, not named the Joker, and staking vampires through the heart. Oh, my favourite one is when he's in his bat helicopter, hangs a noose down, and uh, and uh, uh, hangs a man to death um, <laughs> who had escaped from the circus. I believe. I believe the character had, and then says, "Well, it was a mercy." <laughs> Based. Uh, and then there's also The Shadow, and he was created for a ra radio program called Detective Story Hour, not to be confused with Drag Queen Story Hour. And then he was given his own magazine to cater because the viewers had major demand. And, and this is the also Razor Fist's particular favourite character. Um, I've heard that there is some contention over whether Batman is a more or less direct ripoff of The Shadow. I've not really engaged with any Shadow literature myself, so I can't give my own view on that. There is substantiated rumours that the Joker was a rip-off of a character from The Shadow. Oh, really? I'll, I'll mention that later when we go through Bob Kane and Bill Finger's saga creating Batman, because Bob Kane was a hack. Um, there's no way to, sad two to ways say, about yeah. it. Uh, he had a sizable influence on the industry with the creation, co-creation of Batman, but he stole art, he suppressed credit for It other... has to be noted as well that whenever you hear Bob Kane brought up, it is only ever in relation to the first few years of Batman, and other than that, the only other notable things anybody ever brings him up uh, brings up about him are the controversies that yeah. he's involved in. I'm not aware of any other he uh, characters that he created. He tried to make a couple and they didn't quite stick. Yeah. So, before we talk specifically about superheroes, as in which ones were created, I wanted to talk a little bit more about why they're so synonymous with the industry, and particularly why did they come out of America? Because most people might not understand, around the time, the pressures, the, the social pressures, the economic pressures, that were bearing down on the people in the comic book industry. Uh, the comic book industry was, as you'll probably hear as we go through, made up almost unilaterally of the sons of Jewish immigrants. Mm. Uh, Stan Lee, for example, was, was Stanley Lieber. 
and his dad was a Romanian Jewish immigrant that, that came over to start a new life in America. The cities, particularly the publishing houses, were one of the only things that were still running at the time and, and still hiring. And so that attracted a lot of up and coming, quite intelligent young men. Sometimes it was nepotism that they got hired by. So Timely Comics was the one of the precursor names to Marvel. And Stanley got a job there as an intern at 17 because his cousin's husband was running the publishing department. Mm. So that's one of the only ways you you would get work. But why particularly did superheroes germinate from America? Of course, there was an outcry, a sort of need for a self-empowerment fantasy for disenfranchised young men at the time, and that's not to be scoffed at. There was also the fact that there wasn't really much in the way of entertainment else going on. There were movie serials, as you've alluded to. There yes, were... they came out in the late 1930s mm. uh, when America was still in the grips of the Great Depression. So I'm expecting the Great Depression had something to do with this, something to embolden the American spirit during a time of great difficulty. And then during the war years, I'm expecting as well that they became, well, I know that they became a great tool of uh, wartime propaganda. Yeah, absolutely. And it was because the American spirit, I think it's fair to say, felt a fair bit crushed because if America was meant to be the shining city on a hill, something we've covered before in our podcast on Christian nationalism, mm -hmm. then it felt like the dream was not being fulfilled by the people that were running America, the people that permitted Wall Street to bankrupt the country, uh, Roosevelt elongating the depression despite promising not to. And that's, that's, that's always an interesting thing to me. I don't want to derail it yep. at all. But um, in the 1930s, obviously, nowadays, the Roosevelt administration is held up in typical histories as being a great saviour of America. The New Deal saved America. It didn't. All you need to do is do, do some rudimentary reading on Thomas Sowell, and he will dispel that myth immediately. It extended the Great Depression. In the 1930s, was Roosevelt seen as this kind of saviour that he's depicted as these days, or was it more acknowledged within the wider public that he's making things worse? I think because of adverse economic conditions, as far as I know, I'm no, I'm no expert, his popularity was somewhat waning on the lead up to the war. And then Pearl Harbor did happen, which was very convenient. And it just so happens they had some forewarning about that and they mm -hmm. knew it was going to happen in advance. And then as soon as America entered the war, of course, Roosevelt had uh, an excuse to violate the constitution and stay on as a, as a third term president. I, I don't think that actually was ever violating the constitution itself. I think it was after he had stayed on and it became clear that he was doing so. You might be correct there. Irresponsibly, shall we say, especially given the adverse condition of his health, that afterwards, then they made it a rule. They drafted a two-term amendment. Okay, I'm happy for that correction. Thank you very much. But I don't think that people were too happy on the ground with the fact that their material conditions were not being ameliorated as expected, as particularly promised. The Foundation for Economic Education has a really good breakdown on their website mm. about how the Great Depression policies actually made it much, much worse. So again, I'm no economist, but as far as I can see, Roosevelt's big socialist state spending policies didn't help America all that much. So particularly going back to the point of superheroes as a kind yes. of secular American monomyth, I see them in the same vein as the frontiersmen, as the founding fathers. It's it's the, the new religious self-definitive myth, particularly as a cultural export that can be pushed around the world to uh, extol American values and share American supremacy. Uh, this is the view of Jean-Paul Gabillet, who wrote a decent book on, on comics. And he said that superhero comics have become, quote, the indigenous 
part a genre, par excellence of comic books, just as the Western was for the cinema in the late 1950s. Their ubiquity in culture has produced the elevation in Western mass culture of the individualist paradigm juxtaposing the legitimacy of established power which was kind of the theme of boomer self-belief of fighting the fascists in mm. the Second World War or the Cold War with defeating Soviets in pretty much every country around the world. And we can see that narrative being challenged, as we said earlier, with the with the sort of homogenous sludge of the modern age, the, the culture that tries to push political values. You can see that waning a little bit at the start of the early 2000s where superheroes did a bit of 9-11 cleanup and then there were a lot of self-critical stories about America being world police, particularly with Superman and, and Captain America. The term monomyth was actually coined by Joseph Campbell. So for those who aren't familiar, Joseph Campbell wrote the book Hero with a Thousand Faces. Jordan Peterson's drawn on him quite a lot. He's a bridge between Jungian psychology and a cross-cultural study of myths. And Campbell wrote, The composite hero of the monomyth is a personage of exceptional gifts, frequently is honoured by a society, frequently unrecognised or disdained. He, and or the world in which he finds himself, suffers from a symbolical deficiency. In fairy tales, this may be as slight as the lack of a certain golden ring, whereas in apocalyptic visions, the physical and spiritual life of the whole earth can be represented as fallen or on the point of falling into ruin. It is not a society that is to guide and say the creative hero, but precisely the reverse. And so every one of us shares the supreme ordeal, carries the cross of the Redeemer, not in the bright moments of his tribe's great victories, but in the silences of his personal despair. The hero of yesterday becomes a tyrant of tomorrow, unless he crucifies himself today. So you can see how this integrates, particularly into America's Christian founding, but also the adverse economic conditions at the time. People were crying out for some sort of cultural strongman. They mm -hmm. wanted someone to step in, re-embody American values, and empower the young men who were disenfranchised politically, out of work, just come out of one war and on the precipice of going into another in Europe. So I think the superhero myth, even though it's been bastardized and polluted and turned into a cringeworthy commercial secular religion, there was one congressman recently with the after the midterms who swore himself in on a copy of Superman number one. And uh, no, stop it. Listen, I know that Grant Morrison made the comparison with the comic books being the new Greek myths. It doesn't mean they're actually gods. It certainly doesn't mean that they're anything that you're able to uh, swear by as part of a higher transcendental power. No. There is no higher transcendental power that emanates from a copy of Superman number one inherently. And if you believe in the sorts of ideals that Superman represents, then that's excellent. But at the same time, that's just cringeworthy. Yeah, and also Grant Morrison is a godless, genderless, vegan communist who thinks that, and he wrote this in Supergods, the early Superman was a socialist. No, Grant. No, I no. don't think he was. I think, to be fair, if we just want to bring up Superman, just to stay on this, just hmm. for a moment. Um, apologies for sniffing. I'm doing my best Zizek impression right now. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, um, sorry. Um, essentially, we can talk about Superman as this interesting juxtaposition of the American myths that they wanted to promote while also slipping in a little bit of that liberal propagandistic element that you could talk that you could say was an implicit part of early comic books that's nowhere near as overt as it is these days because it has been commented on many many times that he is the super immigrant who came from another from another another world another country uh, was accepted into the open arms of America and then went on to become its own its savior its hero etc which does seem to have some given that it was written by Jewish men as well, uh, some 
parallels to be drawn there. And you could say that it was an element of propaganda in there that you were saying that the the noble immigrant comes in and helps to embolden the country and represent its values. But it does show the shift that's happened since then. Because even back then, if you wanted to label this as some kind of liberal propaganda, uh, you could say, well, at least the immigrant who comes in fully assimilates, fully embodies those elements of the American mythos, and also is himself a white male, a big, strong, burly, aspirational white male that other white males who were maybe from different stock to the creators of the original Superman comic can still aspirationally put themselves in the shoes of. Whereas these days, if they do stories on things like Im immigrants, the message is completely flipped on its head, where it's they're special because they don't immigrate, all of the, sorry, integrate, they're special because everything that they do is against the values of America. It's very interesting how that's that shifted if you wanted to look at it in that sense. Yeah, definitely. Well, Superman literally used to stand for truth, justice, and the American way. Now Jim Lee with Tom Taylor has changed it to a better tomorrow. It's the shift from integration into the American ethos to globalist progressivism. Very frustrating. And I would actually say, I'd push back a tiny bit. And that is, uh, you, could, you could read it as the immigrant exceptionalism story, but a better that, one that's, because That's a very common interpretation. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I think that uh, they did say that the Moses story, being Jewish, did influence their creation quite a bit, as well as Samson, biblical strongman. Um, and this is why Zack Snyder as well has drawn some not subtle at all, but quite visually nice allusions to Jesus Christ. because All throughout is, Man of Steel. Yeah. And well, the, the death of Superman, the rebirth yeah, in, in Justice League. And I I think it is not unwarranted to say that Superman is one in a long line of successive redeeming figures brought to a crumbling civilization. And so he has more mythological power than the political power that modern interpretations have polluted. I would I would hope to say that. And that's why he's got some cultural staying power. And that's why even in sort of 2016 era when the American left were crying their eyes out about Trump's suggestion that maybe we shouldn't flood the country full of immigrants and make ourselves poor and culturally alienated. Oh, the racist horror. They said, do we need to abandon Superman in the Trump era? And that's why they had to keep redefining him and then obviously to replace him with his gay son that goes on school <laughs> climate strikes with his pink-haired boyfriend. As you can tell, I'm not delighted by that. But, but again, why did they particularly start in America in the first place? Well, with Superman, Siegel and Schuster, however unconsciously, had created a brilliant 20th century variation on the classic American hero type. The most pervasive myth in American culture is that of the Western frontier hero, who resolves tensions between his wilderness and his civilization while embodying the best virtues of both environments in himself. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.